This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This podcast is in the loop, the legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. This is Stephen Hyden, author of Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock, and you are listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology. DIY and How Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello, diggers. Welcome to another edition of Deeper Digs in Rock. Yes, Christian Swain here. I am the rock and roll archaeologist, uh, and I'm behind the mic in San Francisco today. Uh, home again. Um, just, uh, you know kind of getting it together a uh, lot of work lots of things going on i uh i think uh, it's important for you guys to know that we are growing uh, as a podcast network pantheon uh podcasts it's it's really taking a, another leap here and we appreciate that you guys are listening to a lot of our shows i want to say again welcome to our old friends our old diggers you guys you know who you are and uh and then welcome to the new diggers the new friends uh, over at the osiris network um so hey how you doing uh and thanks to all uh, who engaged in the conversation uh, over the last few weeks. Uh, sounds like some of you have taken to heart what I hope for and left comments, uh, sent some notes, um, helped out with a review or two. Really, so awesome. Really appreciate it. Um, you know, knock on the door next to you and say, hey, it worked. You should do it too. Uh, let your friends know. Yeah, always, always let the friends know about Rock and Roll Archaeology, Deeper Digs and Rock, all of the shows from uh, Pantheon uh, Podcast. So, okay, here's the news. Yes, if you haven't heard, Pamela DeBar has arrived on Pantheon Podcast with a new show that is Pure Pamela. Please go listen to Miss Pamela's Pajama Party and let us know what you think. Uh, there's just the one episode out right now. Episode two is on the way, uh, should be any day now. Uh, so there's that. We really hope you like listening to Miss P as she builds and creates her very own show. I can tell you right away, each one will be special and unique. Uh, purely Pamela, purely just this woman who, uh, just she's a great entertainer. She's just fun to listen to. And uh, insightful and charming. Um, I think she's going to be a big star in the podcast world. So tune in, tune in early, go listen to her, and um, I, I think you'll you'll thank me later. So, all right, I announced a few weeks ago <laughs> uh, we will be releasing episode seventeen called Bookends very shortly. I'd say we're maybe a week or two out now. Uh, it's in the final stages of editing and sound design, and let me tell you, it's a big episode. Really, 
it it's a double episode. <laughs> it's uh, about the New York music scene of the late 1960s. Uh, you know, so like the town itself, it needed to be big. Uh, I, I'm not going to disclose too much except to say, uh, you know, we looked at the music of the Big Apple and decided to focus on the Park Bench and Park Avenue uh, with some very influential acts. Um, we're very much getting close to our ending of the 1960s. We have just a few more stories to tell before we move uh, on to the debauchery and comfort of the 1970s. So there are lots of bookends. Uh, you'll see. We're we're kind of setting up some of these things that will come into play uh, as we move out of the 60s and in, into the 70s. Um, we've been in the 60s for a long time, for a couple of years now. So all of you who love the Rock and Roll Archaeology uh, podcast, uh, I know you're pining. Uh, we hear it, but we make them as fast as we can. And we, we feel like we're making progress and improvements on each show. So uh, we, we thank your patience very much and know that you're just going to get a better show each each time. So anyway, you know, it was a big, long slog to get to this one uh, and get this done. But like I said, it's a double episode. And I think uh, we took another leap in storytelling, the production and sound design. I think uh, you're all going to love it. So. Stay tuned. Episode 17 is uh, is very, very shortly coming, uh, and can't wait to get it out there and everybody to hear about that. Uh, all right. Uh, let me remind you about the Care Of personalized daily vitamin pack that is made with honest guidance and better ingredients. Um, I told you about them a couple of weeks ago and want to mentioned again takecareof.com you can find them there and as you know i am a vitamin junkie uh you know not a not over the top but i take a few every day and i have for decades um i don't carry a suitcase full and get searched at airports or anything but i do think they help protect my health in some ways and uh you know i i I feel it's just a a little bit of insurance um I, i i'm not crazy in the homeopathic world but i I do believe that these things are good for me and uh, just give me a little bit of boost and and keep me healthy. Um, So it's just, you know, my routine. So I signed up with Care Of a few weeks ago. uh, And as I said, it is ridiculously easy. I went through a quick online quiz, asked a series of simple questions, and then they recommend a daily packet that's custom for my needs. Very easy and very convenient. A few days later, I received a 30-day supply, individually packaged per day, that I just open and take. Uh, So, like I said, very easy and convenient. I love not having to go to the store and pick up my vitamins now. So, here's the big thing for me. I am severely allergic to dairy. More than just lactose intolerance. It, I'm telling you, it will take me down for a day if I'm exposed to dairy. Uh, and a lot of vitamins uh, either include dairy in them or processed in a facility and that also processes dairy. Even that will kill me. Well, Care-of takes allergies into consideration with that online quiz. And there are vegan and vegetarian options. And to me, that is a big difference with Care-of. So do yourself a favor and go to TakeCareOf.com and begin the survey to give yourself a healthy life. And uh, hey, guess what? We diggers get a special 50% off of your first month of personalized care of vitamins by entering promo code DEEPER50. 
Now you got to buy over twenty bucks, but that's the you know thirty day supply. Twenty bucks, a couple of vitamins, you're good to go. All right. Finally, um, we love to promote good causes, and I think every company should at least have one organization that they work with uh, that, you know, just helps improve life around the world. So uh, these guys, Care-of, work with Good Foundation, Good Plus Foundation. So a portion of your order, uh, the money goes to uh, to this foundation. I think that's great. So again, takecareof.com, promo code DEEPER50, and you're good to go. Okay, diggers, that is the housekeeping this week. Um yeah, so why don't we get to our show and meet our special guest? Midnight at the Oasis Send your camel to bed Shadows painting our faces Traces of romance in our Yes, friends, with us today is very special guest, Maria Moldar. Uh, so I played Midnight at the Oasis, not because that is what she is most famous for, uh, because, sure, everyone knows that song, but really, to get it out of the way, Maria's story is so much deeper than that song. And while I am sure she loves it as much as all of her babies, I can tell you that is not Maria with the 41 albums under her belt. And certainly the song, you know, made her a household name, but it is one song on one album of which she has 41 albums to her name. Yeah, six Grammy nominations, accolades galore, and most importantly, she's played with so many amazing musicians at the top of their game, just like her. Actually, you know, Maria and has always been much more of a throwback master than a pop princess. She was born and raised in Greenwich Village, always a bohemian mecca, and came of age as the folk revival was getting started in the mid-60s. Throughout the 1960s, she was first in the Even Dozen Jug Band with David Grisman, Steve Katz, Joshua Rifkin, and John Sebastian, then later in Jim Quiskin's and the Jug Band. It's not until 1973 does she make her first solo album uh, with a song who turned her into a superstar for a while. But again, that's not Maria. In the later 70s, she joins up with Jerry Garcia and goes on tour with the Garcia Band and is on the one studio album, 1979's Cats Under the Stars. But her love and the lion's share of her songbird's discography are steeped in traditional Americana blues, folk, and her favorite New Orleans sound, or as she likes to say, bluesiana. She does have a new album out, her 41st. Yeah, one for every year of her life. This one is the 2019 Grammy-nominated Don't You Feel My Leg, the naughty body blues of Blue Barker a collection of songs from one of Maria's very own heroines. Uh, Now, this is far more like Maria. So let's get to it. Let's hang out with the impishly sweet Maria Maldar. 
Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, Maria Meldar. How are you doing today? I'm good, Christian. How about yourself? Well, I think we've had our first sunny day in Northern California in a long time. Thank God. I'm so happy. <laughs> we need the rain, but a few days of sun doesn't hurt. No, the ground needs to kind of soak it up a little yeah. bit. Uh, otherwise, it causes a whole nother set of problems. Yes, let's not even here. go there. So, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. But, uh, uh, you know, it's a it's a nice day to get together with you up here in Mill Valley, of which you've made it your home for a long time, right? Yeah. So. Um, you were recently nominated for a Grammy, which you say is your sixth, right? Is My sixth your Grammy sixth nomination. Grammy nomination. Yeah. And still, not a win. Huh? I'm just the Susan Lucci of the blues. <laughs> what can I tell you? The Susan Lucci. That's right, right, right. And this is in the traditional blues category. Yes. Uh, and unfortunately, the statue went to blues legend Buddy Guy. Yeah. So I guess if well, you're not going to win. for him. Uh, well, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, he's had plenty of, uh, of Grammy yes, uh, he has. wins, hasn't he? So come on. Time to give it up to somebody else. Huh? Well, you know, when they announced him as the winner... The entire place, and it was the only only uh, winner that that solicited this response. The whole place got up for a standing ovation, and I realized the guy's a legend. He's an icon. He's eighty years old, and if I have to lose to somebody, I'm happy to lose to Buddy Guy. Everybody on the list of nominees in that category were people I'm big fans of: Charlie Musselwhite, Elvin Bishop. Buddy, um, so it, it was all good. It's yeah. all good. Just to be in that company is wonderful. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about Blue Lou Barker. Um, born in New Orleans, uh, she was one of the mid-century blues recording artists, perhaps not as famous as names like Billie Holiday or Dinah Washington. So what drew you to her? Well, it's a long story, but uh, we've got nothing but time here. Right, so right. Um, the reason you're asking me about Blue Lou Barker is because the album that I was nominated for is called the uh, is called Don't You Feel My Leg, The right. Naughty Body Blues of Blue Lou Barker. So Don't You Feel My Leg was a song that I was... Uh, that I recorded. Yeah, you did once before. I did, and I'll tell you the story of that, <clears throat> the whole way the connection came about. There I was in L.A. in 1973 making my very first solo album, feeling totally in over my head and overwhelmed and finding myself in the studio with all my musical heroes, Ry Cooter, Jim Keltner, David Lindley, etc. And on piano I had asked for... Dr. John. And um, and those were the days, you know, I was recording for Warner Brothers, so my, anything I asked for, they, they brought into the studio. And it, it was just a wonderful experience. Oh, I looked at the list of players on your first studio album. Yeah, it's, it, there's like 40 players on it. Yeah, and it was just an awesome collection of wonderful musicians. And Dr. John, of course, brought not only his wonderful piano playing to the proceedings, but he also had a lot of good ideas. And one day he came shuffling into the studio and said, Hey, Maria, I think I got a cool song for you. He, he, and he pulled out a little cassette and, and uh, played this song by a woman I had never heard of, Blue Lou Barker, who was a New Orleans blues singer. 
and she had recorded it in the 40s and it was called Don't You Feel My Leg and we thought it was a pretty cute song and we put it on the album and then the album came out and much to everybody's surprise it had this this goofy little song about a camel on it <laughs> that went on to just zoom to the top of the charts and stay there for many months it was also that was the when i got my first two grammy nominations was for that right, for that album right. but as the months wore on dj's were reporting in that that they were actually getting more requests for don't you feel my leg and um to this day that's actually the song that i get the most requests from when i when i perform really more getting, so than oasis yeah yeah because i don't know why because oasis is romantic but don't you feel my leg is naughty? It and is. Let's face it is. It, it is no very what naughty, kind of especially <laughs> when you think of when it was originally recorded. Exactly yeah. in the forties, and you know you can sing all the artistic, sensitive songs you want, but everybody always likes the smuttier ones. <laughs> you know. But anyway, so uh, interestingly enough, because that song, in the end, Warner Brothers decided not to put that out as a second single to show you how different the times were then than now. They thought that, they, they called me up and said, hey, the DJs are wanting to put out, you know, suggesting we put out uh, Don't You Feel My Leg. What do you think of that? I said, okay, great. Sounds great. And they said, but we want you to think of something. If we put out Don't You Feel My Leg as your second uh, single, you may be forever pigeonholed and characterized as a red-hot mama or a sex symbol. So you really want to think about if that's the way you want to be thought of or if you want to be thought of as a serious artist. I said, okay, well, okay. So I went home. Can't you be both? Well, I should have thought of that at the time, but I thought about it over the weekend, and stupid young fool that I was, I came back and said, I want to be known as a serious artiste. So they said, oh, you're probably right, and they didn't put it out. In other words, greed did not uh, you know, prevail with them. They, 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 And they also actually did care about my image and how I would come across, and and my longevity as an artist. So um, and that was that was Mo Osteen Mo running Osteen at, at and, the time, and Lenny right? Warnica. Yeah. yeah, Lenny they, Warnica, right? They were that that legends and great great record men Absolutely. who understood yeah, uh, they were the music. into A and R and the development of an mm -hmm. artist and so forth. I mean, and today when you think that the most rampant, blatant, pornographically graphic sex sells everything, that they were willing to forego all that and just care about me as an artist and what I wanted to project. So anyway, uh, much to my regret all these years later, we didn't put it out as a single, but it was still very popular and is to this day. Well, when it came time to um, send out royalties to all the songwriters who had uh, written songs for the album... The, uh, your first, uh, uh, your first, first album. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, we tried to set... We, it contacted the publishing company uh, that had published Don't You Feel My Leg, and they reported uh, to find out how to send the money to the uh, writers, the Barker, uh, or to the writer, and Danny yeah. Barker, mm -hmm. and, and they said, oh, they're deceased, send the money to us. So we went back to Dr. John and told him that, and he said, deceased, he said, the 
They are. Oh, you can cuss on this. Can we? Okay, I'll say it Deceased, he said. The fuck they are. He said, I just seen them down on Bourbon Street three weeks ago. So with his help, we got their correct contact info and sent them the first of many big, fat, juicy royalty checks. And uh, they were very grateful for that. And and um, they were already in their 60s at, the, at this point. And, um, this is 1973. So yeah. yeah. And then when I went to New Orleans to perform, I made a point of inviting them, and, and they took us out for dinner afterwards, and they were just wonderful people, and Danny Barker was a jazz guitar player who had played with Cab Calloway, Louis Armstrong, Billy Holiday, uh, to name but a few, and, and is a wonderful raconteur, and so he was telling us all kinds of great stories, and they were just great, soulful people, and I became friends with them and I, I actually sent them a, a gold album which they proudly displayed on their wall and then and so every time I'd go to New Orleans I'd make a point of going to visit them and oh you became friends yes oh. yes yes and and so uh, sadly they both passed on now but uh, a couple of years ago I was I was contacted by some musicians in New Orleans who Danny Barker was not only a great musician and a great storyteller, but he also almost single-handedly helped bring about the revival of that old traditional jazz, you know, the Rebirth Brass Band and all these bands that are now. He he sort of schooled a whole younger generation of players down there into the the cool old traditional jazz sound. and um, And so they have a little festival honoring him every year and they call me up and said we're doing this Danny Barker festival we'd like you to come down and do a tribute one of the nights a tribute to Blue Lou Barker so I thought what a great idea yeah and started looking around for enough material to fill a whole evening's worth of, uh, of uh, entertainment and uh, I didn't know that many of her other recordings because nobody ever had done a compilation of them. You know, their recordings existed mostly on 78. Yeah, 78 so acetate and that so, sort of thing. Um, but as I started doing the research, and thank God it was in this day and age when all of a sudden you can just with a click of the mouse, you know, download everything somebody you, yeah, ever did. Yeah, it's all at your fingertips. Yeah, to my delight and surprise, I, real, I discovered that they had written and recorded dozens of songs equally naughty and bawdy and funny and clever as Don't You Feel My Leg with titles like Lone Me or Husband and <laughs> Bow-Legged Daddy and uh, uh, just a uh, trombone man, uh, uh, just a lot of cool stuff, very fun, very upbeat, clever and um, happy music. So I put together an A team of great players down there. We did the show, and after the show, everybody loved it and went swarming up to the CD table and said, which is the one that has this material we just saw? So big light bulb went off over my head. Time to I make did. another album. Yeah, I said, you know, we, we really should share this material with people. So it took me a couple of years, but I finally um, pulled it together and went down to New Orleans this spring. and pulled together a killer band of just the best players down there. And we did the album, and uh, to my delight and surprise, everybody's really loved it. We I toured with it all this fall and still doing shows with featuring the material. People just love the material. 
and um, it, it, like you mentioned earlier, it was nominated for a Grammy, and as a result of it also, I've been invited to Jazz Fest, New Orleans Jazz and Heritage yep, Festival, Nola, 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 which Jazz I'll, Heritage I'm Festival, putting right. together the same great band, and uh, <laughs> All right. so it, it's been a real fun project, and, and just to... I love being able to shine a lot of light on earlier artists who haven't gotten the recognition they deserve. And um, for instance, when I was doing the research, I came across a quote that said that Billie Holiday is quoted as saying that Blue Lou Barker was her biggest influence. Really? Really. Yeah. I was I was very surprised. Now, you can ask anybody, even a young person today, they'll know who Billie Holiday is. But oh, yeah. You know, but 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 uh, here was the person that was her main influence, and not very many people know, knew who she was. So, I'm happy to share all this wonderful music with people. Yeah, I, I always tell people, uh, you know, if you if you want to know about your hero, find out who their hero, That's their heroes were. That's very good advice. So. Yeah. Um, how and why did you fall for the blues so hard? Because to be honest with you, you know, Midnight of the Oasis is like an outlier for you. That's not really Maria Moldar. It's more of this traditional type of blues roots and, music, and, yeah. and roots music. And, and that's really what grabbed you from a very early age, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I first started listening to music. My first intense musical memories was my Aunt Katie playing me what she called cowboy music, which was early country and western. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We were living in New York City. I was a young little Sicilian kid living in Greenwich Village. Let's and, let's tell the diggers that you grew uh, up uh, in in post war New York City, actually Greenwich Village, yeah, uh, an artist haven since the nineteenth century, uh, which would turn into a mecca of the counterculture in the latter half of the twentieth century. Mm -hmm. And that's where you were born. I was born right in the epicenter of everything hip, mm -hmm. and. And uh, just, uh, it's really a blessing because I got to be exposed to so much great music. But at the age of five, when my mother was saying she only wanted me to listen to classical music, she wanted me to be, you know, grow up to be very cultured. But her younger sister sabotaged all that by playing <laughs> Hank Williams and Kitty Wells and people like that for me. And I immediately fell in love with their soulful singing style. And the very first song I ever learned to sing was uh, Kitty Wells's. It wasn't God who made honky tonk angels, which was uh, her, re you know, response to Hank Williams' song "Honky Tonk Angels." And anyway, so that was my first musical love. Then I was definitely into all the early R and B that was just emerging when I was like getting to be about thirteen years old. Um, I could tune in these these R&B stations way at the end of the radio dial. All the all the cool stations were always, you know, at the end of the dial, on, you know, operating on about 10 watts or something. But I, I could get them and I could hear Muddy Waters and Little Walter and Ruth Brown and people like that. That's funny. You're, you're the third person I've interviewed from the East Coast around that period that always uses the same analogy of way at the far end of the dial. Yes, it's right on the outside. It ain't in the mainstream no, it's no. right up mainstream it's way on the edge but anyway so you're asking me about you know i'm trying to give you a, a brief synopsis of my musical yeah journey. with your family and uh you know and you said it's your uh, your aunt who uh corrupted you to uh, the dark <laughs> God side bless her. <laughs> yeah. as well, your mom wanted you to be a uh an upright as you said a sicilian 
uh, proper lady uh, yeah, here. Yeah, it, it was hopeless. I was already hooked. And so so when I started listening to that early R&B, I, it was at the very same time it was kind of morphing into rock and roll. I mean, I remember listening to the Alan Freed show kind of when he started coining that phrase. Right. Um, but um, so I had a, a girls doo-wop group. One in high school. Oh, you did? I, one in junior high with three Puerto Rican girls mm-hmm. called the Cameos. And we did a lot of cover tunes, um, and, you know, and sang in assemblies and stuff like that. And then I went to a high, a high school in a whole different neighborhood and hooked up with three gals from the Bronx. And uh, we formed a, uh, another girls' doo-wop group called the Cashmere's. We thought that sounded nice. so sexy mm-hmm. and classy. And I wrote some songs, and we we went around to the Brill Building, lying to our parents and telling them we were going to the library to do a book report. Right. And we had outfits in our lockers that we'd put on, tight white sweaters, tight black skirts, and we sewed a big velvet C on the front of the sweaters. For cashmere's, right. Yes, for ca- <laughs> C for cashmere's. And we would just go down to the Tin Pan Alley area in Midtown Manhattan and just go in the Brill Building and look on the directory and start on the top floor and just go into the offices of all these little record companies and m- music publishing companies and say, hi, we're the cashmere, and start singing. When I think of it now, I don't know how we had the chutzpah to, to do that. I could never do that now, but, you know. Uh, it, well, you, you all must have been pretty confident in your voices. Well, yeah, we did sound pretty good. We had great harmonies. But anyway, this kind of seedy character named Harvey Katz saw us uh, in the lobby and kind of approached us and said he managed rock and roll groups and so forth. And he named a couple that he that we'd heard of. And he actually did get us a record deal on Gone Records, which had the Shirelles and the Chantels. Oh. But when it, uh, that when I confessed that to my mother, that we hadn't been going to the library all this time and that, all, you know, I was only 15, so we had to ask. So the moms had to come yeah, down they to, to sign a contract. Right. Mm-hmm. My mother just threw a fit. Really? Said, tell, told my father, watch your daughter. I'm go- They're not going to make a white slave out of my daughter. So she went up, burst into the meeting and put the uh, an immediate kibosh on all my rock and roll dreams. Oh my gosh! Yes, I was heartbroken, but in a way, it was okay because it was right around the time that the really cool, funky rock and roll that was the most informed by R and B. It was all getting replaced. They were replacing Elvis with Pat Boone and yeah, that's Fabian. Right. Yeah. They were, um, you know, you had Pat Boone singing. Ain't that a shame, <laughs> you know, and and you know, and Fats Fats Domino and all those guys were being, you know, they were being covered by other much more turned white into line. white bread. Well, yeah. you know, there there is an element of racism that uh, can be found in the record business at well, that time. Well, yeah, I mean, it was just they, the, they the, were just trying the expectations to expectations of society. Yeah, they wanted to, you know, appeal to. All the little, the broadest, uh, the teeny boppers, you know, and so yeah, original rock and roll is not safe, and uh, they were trying to make it more safe. Well, it it just became much more vapid. Yeah. So I, luckily, because I was crushed when this whole episode happened. So this is early sixty, like no, 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 fifty, fifty nine, fifty eight, fifty nine, fifty eight, fifty seven, fifty eight. 
Elvis is in the army now. Yeah, uh, exactly. So it's sort of like it lost its cool. It 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 just became. It was much more sort of teeny bopper music mm -hmm. as opposed to just cool, funky R and B informed music. And so I lost my interest. And but right around that same time, I started noticing that. Right in my neighborhood, around Washington Square Park, which is a few <laughs> blocks away revival. from where I live, there was this whole folk revival <laughs> yeah. going on. Yeah. And pe uh, people in the urban north were starting to discover and explore all kinds of, um, I call it American roots music. They, it was called folk music at the time. Yeah, Woody Guthrie, the Weavers. That yeah, sort of they, they were all, they, yeah, Pete Seeger. Pete there Seeger, was all, yeah. all of those, but people were starting to discover all these early like Appalachian fiddle players. Oh, and, because the Alan Mo Lomax yeah. uh, material that started. Yeah, to there be was the Spokeways on anthology that mm -hmm. everybody started having, and and the, the a Smithsonian collection yeah. and uh, and the Alan Lomax stuff, mm -hmm. and and for us to hear. So now, as we mentioned, the the and you the, already have an interest in this sort of music as yeah it is. yeah so the the thing is that I hear the music on the radio is getting more and more whitewashed and so by the time you come to 1960 and here we are and we hear these beautiful strains of bluegrass music and early blues and mississippi john hurt and and you know doc watson and it sounds so authentic and so soulful after a steady diet of how much is that doggy in the window and all the other <laughs> crap they were putting out on the radio by then. So it just, we all gravitated toward it. It just grabbed us all. And um, I just started going to the park and listening. You know, you'd go around the circle. There was a big fountain in the middle and, you know, there'd be a little clump of people playing Appalachian fiddle tunes and people playing bluegrass and people playing blues. And I just wanted to absorb all of it. I just loved all of it. And, uh, and uh, I first started to, I ran away from home at 17 and got a job as a mother's helper for this family in the same neighborhood. I didn't want to. So you were going to make it as a musician uh, no, come hell or high water. Well, I wasn't trying to make it as a musician. I was just trying to survive my teenage years. <laughs> but th th these people, I feel like destiny brought me to this particular household uh, I had to take her two little girls and the parents went out almost every night and they had walls of records so after the parents went out and I put the kids to bed I'd explore them they had all Duke Ellington all oh Fletcher Henderson I mean just great collections Louis Armstrong and the entire wow. collection of Bessie Smith's original 78s, okay? Uh -huh. Just to name a few things. And I'll never forget, you're asking me, this is a long way around of me telling you how I fell in love with the blues. Bessie Smith, uh, I, I saw this album, you know, they were 78s in sleeves on these albums, and it said Empty Bed Blues, part one and part two. And I never forget putting the needle down on that scratchy 78 and hearing this incredibly profound, soulful voice come out and, you know, sing, when the bed gets empty makes me feel awful mean and blue. My springs are getting rusty, sleeping single like I do. And I was just transfixed and it was a totally epiphanal moment for me. And I just stood there and went, 
this is what I want to be when I grow up. Really? Yeah, I just, but not with a conscious thing of I want to have a career and this and that. It, that no, it was a was strictly visceral yeah. uh, sort of feeling of just you you, you want to sing as soulful as Bessie Smith. Exactly, because I, yeah. I hadn't heard anything. I mean, Hank Williams was soulful, Kitty Wells was soulful, a lot of, lot of people, but this was like coming from a really profound, deep place. And I learned the song and started singing it at little hoot nannies and parties, and people seemed to enjoy it, and that was encouraging. And then around that same time, I, uh, I started hearing a lot of Appalachian old-timey music, and I was drawn to learn to play the fiddle. I went down to North Carolina and stayed with Doc Watson and his family, and his father-in-law taught me how really? to play the fiddle. Yeah, yeah. I met them. They they were one of the groups and and of artists that uh, that were brought up by a little sort of loose group of people called the Friends of Old Time Music. What happened was we started. We would listen to these folkways anthologies and so forth and and the music sound it you know they were just reproductions of scratchy old 78s and the music sounded like it was coming from very long ago and very far away through the mists of time you know right. so we had no idea that any of these people were still actually alive but people started going down looking people up and uh rediscovering them that they were perfectly alive and well and playing this music on their front porches or at town dances or whatever and bringing them up north to concerts and I was in the middle of all of that and I met Doc Watson and his family at one of those concerts so that's how uh, I, I got connected with them but also Booker White, Skip James, Mississippi John Hurt, all the original blues guys who had been you know, were believed to not even be alive anymore. Right. Were were alive and got brought up to play at folk little folk houses and Newport Folk Festival and re recorded by Vanguard and so forth. So my love of the blues goes way back. To answer your question yes. half an hour later. No, I love it. Uh that's uh, you know, again, it shows that, you know, your credibility and uh in traditional blues is not just something new that has happened or mm -hmm. a one-off this mm -hmm. is this is a pursuit that you've had throughout your entire career yeah. so you're in new york city the you know it's the early 60s you're you're living near gertie's folk city cafe wall gaslight uh names like peter paul and mary kingston trio bob dylan they're about to pop and you join the even dozen jug band ah Yes, that was funny. Um, I I had just come back from a, a, one of my trips down to North Carolina where I was staying with Doc and mm -hmm. his family. And I went to Washington Square Park to see what was going on. And two of my friends, David Grisman and John Sebastian, mm -hmm. came running up to me and said, <laughs> Guess what? We're we're forming a jug band and we're going to we're going to do a record and and uh, they told me about this woman named Victoria Spivey who was one of the original blues queens along with Bessie Smith, Ma Rainey. She was in that classic Sippy Wallace. She was in that group of of uh, blues artists that recorded in the 20s and early 30s but she had survived the ensuing decades after the that style of blues faded away and she had moved to new york city 
and I would see her at Hootenanny, sitting at Gertie's Folk City, like she 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 was the first artist that I know of that was savvy enough to have her own record label, mm. Spivey Records. Mm-hmm. So she was always out talent scouting. Right. She's the first person that ever recorded Bob Dylan, and if you remember. One of Bob Dylan's early albums, there's a picture of him on the back of the album with an older black lady. Mm-hmm. That's her. This is way before John, John Hammond and, uh, and Columbia. Columbia. Right? No. Yeah, yeah. She, she uh, asked him to come down and play harmonica. She was cutting a few sides with Big Joe Turner. So that was Dylan's first recording that I know of. Anyway, so they come back, they come over and tell me that while I was away, they had discovered jug band music and they were fooling around with it and she heard them and she, you know, she remembered that music fondly from her from her heyday and said, you know, you boys are good, you know, I'll, I'll give you a record contract. And they were just over the moon about that. But she said, but you know, you boys need some sex appeal up there. She said, why don't you get that little gal I saw down in the park playing the fiddle, the one with the pigtails, you know, get <laughs> get her in your band and then you'll really have something. So they had come up rushing up to me, you know, and I can see what she meant because you know, let's just say they were still in their clearasil phase. You know, uh, John, were... John, Sebastian, and David Grisman. Yes. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah, and 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 the rest of them. You know. Um, yeah, and let's 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 put out who else was in that band. I think uh, Stephen uh, Grossman, Steve Katz, Steve Katz, uh, Peter Siegel, yeah, uh, and Joshua Rifkin, right? Yeah, uh, well, and then of course John Sebastian, Love and Spoonful, yeah, and David Grisman. We'll come back and forth with who's yeah. you know known for Jerry Garcia and Jerry Garcia band and, and, and stuff like that, and and for you know his incredibly you know innovative invention of you know dog music which is sort of a fusion of bluegrass and Django Reinhardt style music but anyway at this point his mom was still bringing driving him to the rehearsals so that's how (laughs) young we all were so anyway they they say we need some sex appeal will you join the band so uh, so this was way before women's liberation, so I didn't feel at all insulted to be asked to join a band because of my sex appeal. So I said, sure, sounds like fun, I'll do it. And then Victoria Spivey took me under her wing and, and you know, took me to her apartment and tried to find songs. Because I had a much lighter voice then than I do now, you know. If you think to what I sounded like on Midnight at the Oasis, I mean... It took me decades to get the low, powerful blues voice that I have now, but that was always my wish from the moment I first heard Bessie Bessie Smith. Bessie Smith, right. So, but in the meantime, she tried to find songs that would be suitable for my young voice, and she first introduced me to Memphis Minnie. She played me a, a Memphis Mini 78, as well as stuff of her own and a lot of other people, but I always thank her in my mind for that. And she really also really schooled me. She said, now listen, you know when you get up there, it ain't enough to just sound good. You gotta look good too. You gotta get up there and strut your stuff and make all eyes be on you. She said, that stage presence. And, you know, I took notes. and So I, many musicians forget that. Back then. I, I guess so. But, you know, I was young and impressionable, and she definitely seemed like she knew what she was talking about. So anyway, we ended up recording an album, one album. Uh, but in the meantime, Elektra Records had uh, heard about the 
the coming jug band craze. <laughs> that because there was another jug band called the Jim Queskin Jug Band right. that had already recorded a record for Vanguard, and so they. Uh, and they had gotten an article in the, I don't know, Life magazine or something, and they were doing gigs around, and they were getting quite popular. They were from Boston, which was another hub of the folk scene. And uh, so Electra brought our contract out from Victoria Spivey. I'm sure she made out okay. Oh, sure. But um, anyway, so that was my first recording in 1963. And then shortly after that, John Sebastian t took me to see the Queskin Jug Band. We thought we'd go check out the... The competition. The competition. <laughs> and we were quite impressed. Everyone in the band was a virtuoso. And, and in that band was a handsome blue-eyed blues singer named Jeff Muldar. Mm -hmm. And, of course, you can see where this <laughs> is leading. So we kind of really hit it off. And the next thing I knew, I was... You're in the Jim Queskin Chuck band. <laughs> well, you're, you're skipping over the fact we fell in love. I moved up there to... Cambridge Mass to be with him and after a few months one of those the members of the Queskin band quit and they asked me to join mm -hmm. and I went on to record with them all throughout the uh, the, 60s. the 60s yeah so uh, with the the even uh, dozen jug band uh, one album one uh, album and nobody... uh, but you did get to play Carnegie Hall we did. We had three gigs that I can remember. Two were at Carnegie Hall. Right. One was a big sing-out hootenanny that had Pete Seeger and Odetta and all the big, you know, folk stars at the time. And the second was opening for Nina Simone and Herbie Mann. Wow. Yeah. Not bad place to start. And the third was a, a TV show that featured folk music called Hootenanny. Oh. And there's great footage of that, and um, I, I just, I just blows my mind to watch it. But uh, anyway, but after that, not too many little folk clubs could afford to hire a 13-piece band, and I'm sure most of the guys' parents were going. There's no way that we, we paid for you to go to Columbia University, <laughs> and you're going to quit college and become and a, a, a kazoo player. <laughs> so that the band kind of fizzled. It just all worked out perfectly, and I just kind of ended up in the Queskin band, which was a great education for me. They were all great musicians, and I have the fondest memories of, of of those years. Yeah, and you live out the, the rest of the 1960s in the Queskin Band. In the Queskin Band. That band disbanded in 68 uh, or 69, and then by that time we were not on Vanguard anymore. We were on Reprise Records, and uh, Mo Austin, uh, uh, the president of Warner Reprise, invited Jeff Muldar and I to make a couple of Duo uh, a albums. duet, uh, the dual, dual yeah. albums. That's and right. We stole a fabulous guitar player from Ian and Sylvia's band called Amos Garrett, mm -hmm. the, who's the, the guy that did that famous, wonderful guitar solo on Midnight at the Oasis yeah. that people mm -hmm. really remember and love so well. Anyway, uh, we made one album in in uh, Boston, and then we moved to Woodstock, which had by that time had become another musical uh, right, epicenter. Right. The bands there, uh, Big Pink and all that. Yeah, and, uh, the, yeah Bob, uh, Bob Dylan Dylan's lived there, there, the band, yeah. Paul Butterfield, Todd yeah. Rundgren, um, you name it. And yeah. so that was a very interesting time of a lot of musical collaboration and cross-pollinization. Right. By that time, we our two albums were 
not acoustic. We we no, they're know, electric. Once we were with Amos Garrett, we were plugged in. Yeah, so the beginning to move into a little bit more of a pop element. It's still blues. Yeah, um, well, it, it, it just was more you know accessible, more like more accessible, rock, more yeah. rock and roll, yeah. more R and B. Yeah. yeah. Which, which I want to ask a question, which sure. is, which is, you know, all through the '60s, you're in this jug band, and rock and roll is happening all around you, mm-hmm. and you know, I mean, did you, did you kind of like say, gosh, you know, the grass looks really green over there, is that why you moved over there at no, the end, or it, you know, were, you, not, were you ever jealous about that, or not at all, not at all, because I came up. As a rock and roll kid, I came up, and and most of us had spent our teen years listening to that stuff, you know, to the good rock and roll. Yeah. And, um, you know, the best way to discuss that is to talk about Dylan's famous, you know, in 1965, we were at the Newport Folk Festival, and... and, um, uh, Dylan, uh, the Paul Butterfield Blues Band had done a workshop, like maybe on a Thursday or Friday afternoon, and Dylan had heard them, and you know he wanted to incorporate that sound, and he too came out of an intense rock and roll. Oh, sure, teenage, yeah. As a, in know. high school, and you know, yeah, there's the the story of him getting unplugged at uh, at high school and all that before yeah. he went acoustic, yeah, and then went electric at yeah. the, uh, so, the Newport. Uh, so, so what happened was we were very excited to think that it, this great Paul Butterfield blues band was going to, you know, that Dylan had hooked up with them, and boy, that was going to be great. And I ran out in the audience. We the jug band played in the first half of that set of that evening mm-hmm. and then after the intermission bob was going to come out oh this is the 65 yeah. uh, newport folk festival and we i sat in the audience and out comes bob and these guys come out and start plugging in their amps and so forth elvin bishop and and uh you know whatever the band was um Al Cooper. Yeah, Al Cooper. Was and, um, and Dylan started to play, and I thought it sounded great. But half the audience booed. No, a third of the audience booed. Another third of the audience cheered. And the other third didn't know what to think or what to do. And then afterwards... Oh, that sounds like there, a microcosm of America. Exactly. <laughs> so it was like... Um, and then there was just all this, just a lot of angst and 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 turmoil going on about it. And and afterwards, there was a lot of te- you know there was the old guard like Theodore Bickell and Pete Seeger and all those folk purists, and they thought it was a big outrage and so forth. But Dylan never let that stop him. Mm-hmm. He you know he went on to work with the band after that, mm-hmm. and um, I didn't remember till I saw a movie about it a few years ago, a movie Don't that look I'm back. in. You're in. Yeah, that I'm in Martin Scorsese. And it was at that point that I remembered that for a couple of years after that, he was booed everywhere he went, but he, d- he didn't let that deter him for a minute because it was a killer band, and that's what he wanted to do. But people have such pre-rigid, preconceived ideas. I mean, nobody got upset. People like Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf played the folk festival numerous times. Nobody went, oh, heavens to Betsy, they've plugged in their guitars. You know, and all the blues people went, made a natural progression from acoustic to electric. Yes. My big hero, Memphis Minnie, 
she was a killer New Orleans, I mean, I'm sorry, a killer country blues guitar. She didn't just sing the blues, she played killer guitar and wrote and recorded over 200 of her own songs. That's saying something, considering she started in the late 20s. Now, as she evolved, she and and she was also smart enough to marry not one but several great guitar-playing husbands, you know? (laughs) So as things progressed for her, they migrated up to Chicago, as many, many uh, black musicians did, and just black folks in general. The great migration. Yeah. Yeah. And and so uh, the first song of hers I ever recorded, uh, Won't You Be My Chauffeur, which later kind of got stolen into, it's into Good Morning Little School Girl, but it's the same licks, it's Mm -hmm. her licks and so forth. Uh, She went from being an acoustic uh, blues singer and guitar player to plugging in and why do you suppose they plugged in because they were playing in little juke joints where everybody was talking and getting drunk and dancing and shouting at each other one thing or another so it was a very practical decision to say well we can just plug into this little block box and then no matter what's going on we can be heard and we can hear ourselves so you know nobody had a problem with that she had a big hit with Chauffeur Blues in about 1940. I don't have the exact year right. But that was the precursor to rock and roll, that stuff there. Oh, yes. And yeah, a lot of the stuff that I recorded on the Blue Lou album, which mm-hmm. I'll talk about in a minute. But anyway, the point is the real musicians had no problems with all these categories and separations. If it was good, Try it. if it was soulful, if it was funky, if it said something, if you were good on your instrument, they liked it. Nobody nobody made, made a fuss about that. Nobody thought Muddy Waters was inauthentic because he plugged in his guitar. So the whole thing was just a silly, artificial uh, kind of construct that that we we musicians just ignored and went on to follow our musical paths, whatever they might have been. Well, you just follow the muse where it goes. And, yeah, uh, exactly. You, you can't help yourself. You just have to do you it. You can't help yourself. You you just got to do it. So you uh, and Jeff uh, move out to California. No. Oh. No, 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 no. Jeff and I, after living in Woodstock for a couple of years after we had made two albums now for Warner Reprise, which were very eclectic albums um, that just had... Neither of us really wrote songs. He wrote a little bit. He's a great composer now, but at the time he did write a couple of the tunes. But I did everything from Won't You Be My Chauffeur by Memphis Minnie to Lover Man by Billie Holiday to what else did I record? Oh, Trials, Troubles, Tribulations, which is an old Appalachian hymn. I mean, they couldn't have been more eclectic. We just found songs we liked and treated them in a new way and put them out there. So they were critically well-received, but no big hits on them or anything. And then in the meantime, with all this musical cross-pollinization going on in Woodstock, Jeff and... uh, and Paul Butterfield had started uh, playing together a lot, and they decided to form a band called Better Days, mm-hmm. and um, which was Paul's evolution, his next step up from just being a straight-ahead blues band. Right. And um, and at that point, Jeff's 
Jeff and my musical and personal partnership had just about run its course. So we broke up in 72 or 73. I can't remember now. But anyway, uh, I happened to run into Mo Austin in New York City. And uh, when he found out that we were parting ways, he said, why don't you make your own album? And I, I was really not sitting around going, God, I wish I could get rid of this guy so I could have a solo career. But I I thought it was better than becoming a waitress, which was all I had in mind to do. Was... Yeah, because he had been our, the musical mastermind of, of, of everything I had done musically for the last, you know, for about 10 years. So, yeah. so I, I, I didn't really have big aspirations of being a solo artist, but who's going to turn down the president of Warner Brothers when he invites you to make an album? And besides, it was going to be in L.A., and I would get out of the Woodstock blizzard season. So I went out to L.A. and did my first solo album, which we spoke about earlier. We'll get into that here in a second, but I, I do want to point out that with those albums that you made with Jeff, something does come out of it that does become kind of a hit later on, and that's your version of Brazil, for Terry Gilliam's movie, Brazil. Uh, yeah, that that is the strangest phenomenon because it was Jeff's idea to do that. That's all Jeff's arrangement. That's the kind of stuff he mm -hmm. was great at. And we had a friend who played trumpet who played, who whistled on it. And that was all. It was just a very camp send-up of the tune that Jeff just wanted to do and Amos played that cool little lick on it and so forth. And and our drummer was Billy Monday, who had been the one the original drummer with the Mothers of Invention. Oh, Frank Zappa. Yeah, mm -hmm. so we had a good little studio band there. So anyway, years later, they call the movie Brazil, and it has nothing to do with Brazil because they loved... The song. The song. Yeah, Terry did, yeah. And, yeah. you know, God bless them. We still get some mailbox money for that every <laughs> once in a while. So you just never you know. You never know. <laughs> right. Okay, so Mo Austin uh, says, come out, do a solo album. Yeah. Out to California. You're done with Woodstock anyway. Yeah. And uh, you move out here, where you've you've been now for uh, since then, right? Since yeah, since, uh, well, I I I went out there and they. I'm sure got you went to Southern California bungalow. first. Yeah. yeah, in Laurel Canyon, in the heart of you know Hollywood, and I recorded my first three three out. Well, I recorded all my albums for Warner Brothers in L.A. Mm -hmm. and um, got together with Lenny Warnick, a really wonderful producer and it was co-produced by Joe Boyd who was an old friend of Jeff's and um, Jeff's and mine and uh, between them they just gave me the opportunity to explore and experiment and I did an album that had it starts out with a Jimmy Rogers song any old time right um, it has a New Orleans blues song. This Don't is your you first solo my, album. My first yeah, solo album. Yeah. I, I think I'm the first person to ever record a Dolly Parton song. I did uh, in my Tennessee Mountain home and got Linda and some other lovely voices. To Linda Ronstadt. Yeah, Linda Ronstadt. <laughs> to be... Because you've sang on her albums as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But that came after. Uh -huh. um, anyway, so... Uh, and somebody that was interviewing me uh, about a dozen years ago, said, you know, Maria, you single-handedly invented Americana music decades before anyone gave gave the 
genre a name mm -hmm. gave it that name and i said what do you what do you mean and they said well look at your first album you've got a dolly parton song you've got a new orleans blues you have some contemporary sort of artistic folk songs by the mcgarrigal sisters and uh and and by contemporary songwriters like david nick turn i i had recorded uh the first of his I did two of his songs on there. One was a beautiful little country ballad called I Never Did Sing You a Love Song. And uh, so th there couldn't have been a more eclectic mix on that record. And then on my second album, I went on to invite Doc Watson and his son Merle Watson to come out and do one of my first songs I had learned from them, Honey Babe Blues, and, um, and then started exploring big band stuff. So I guess the person was right that I had no idea what I was doing, but that's sort of the beginning of drawing from all those genres and, you know, making it your own. And just... oh, You were doing the same thing by going back into time and pulling those songs out exactly. uh, and putting a, 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 a more modern spin on it for, for, for the mid-1970s, yeah. just as Americana music today that mm -hmm. uh is trying to put a you know modern spin on it uh from from old music and yeah. and creating something new out of it so yeah. so you um you've now had 42 albums 40, no the the tribute to blue loop barker don't you feel my leg is it, it, by my count if i'm not leaving anything out is my 41st album your 41st okay yes. one for every year of your life almost yeah yes. <laughs> you're so kind <laughs> but uh what's it what's it like to have that sort of career with, with that many albums all put together well i you know i never thought it's quite of a body of work now, looking back on it, I would say it is, but, you know, I just, I'm very much a one-day-at-a-time kind of person, and I never, back in the day, even, you know, when I already was a musician, I never, the word career wasn't even in my vocabulary till way, way later, till way after Midnight at the Oasis. I didn't think of having a career in music. I just thought it was like a musical thread that I just kept following and following and seeing where it would lead me and taking a detour here into the blues and a detour there into gospel. And, you know, I didn't, I forgot to tell you this, but before the Even Dozen Jug Band, I was the lead singer in a bluegrass quartet called Maria and the Washington Square Ramblers that featured David Grisman on mandolin. Mm -hmm. This is like in 62. Mm -hmm. So bluegrass, all these elements, yeah. and just following them along. And in the last bunch of years uh i i've recorded and performed all over the world with a the band i have now is called uh I, it goes by maria maldar and her red hot bluesiana band mm -hmm. and bluesiana is a word that i that i made up years ago to describe the kind of new orleans blues and r&b and swamp funk that i kind of have been the most drawn to and where I settle most of the time. And um, that came about because after I wasn't recording with Warner Brothers anymore, in the 80s, Dr. John and I ended up uh, getting together and doing quite a bit of duo gigs. You know, just him on piano and me singing, and he would sing too. And we toured around the States and in Europe quite a bit. And it was an incredible musical delight 
for me to work with him. He's just so amazing, but also very educational. He would teach me a lot about the early New Orleans players, and he turned me on to James Booker and just all kinds of great musicians and 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 bits of music and so I'd come off the road from him from being with him and I would just miss that rolling funky soulful New Orleans style piano playing and Mm -hmm. I made it a prerequisite that anybody that I hired to play piano and in fact any instrument would have to be well steeped in the New Orleans style of of music and so that's what I've been doing for the last bunch of years but about a Nine years ago, the I, I got nostalgic for the jug band days, and I put together an album with a lot of my old jug band friends called Maria Maldarner, Garden of Joy. And I had John Sebastian and Fritz Richmond, who played jug in the Queskin Band, and um, uh, Dan Hicks and David Grisman, and uh, some other wonderful younger players who were taking up this music and really doing really shredding with it you know oh yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the new crop of players that are rediscovering it now are just incredible virtuosos on all their instruments it's just it's it well, really i'm sure you go to hardly strictly uh oh, every yeah. year uh and there's so many young uh musicians that are pursuing this they're pursuing uh, it and excelling in it and it, it's very encouraging to think that all this music is proliferating with no help from the above-ground media. You're not going to read about this stuff in People magazine most of the time or see it on Entertainment Tonight. But there's more Roots Music festivals and bands and record companies and so forth than there ever were when this music first emerged, you know? Yeah. So, but that that Maria Muldarner Garden of Joy album was recorded right here in this living room with uh, an engineer that had great Pro Tools. And uh, what do you know if it wasn't nominated for a Grammy? <laughs> I was beyond shocked. So we're sitting in a living room where a Grammy-nominated album Several, was, was several <laughs> Grammy. I had two others before that, all paying tribute to the earlier blues legends. Right, right. And, um, and so... I like to bring them, bring the songs back. They're timeless. They're timeless songs, and then, but just with much better acoustic quality, and and just put a little more funk and edge onto it, and uh, and it it appeals to people because just like in the '60s when we first heard this stuff, people are starving for good music. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, agree. it's like they're they're force fed the the junk food of the equivalent of musical junk food and all of a sudden they get a home-cooked meal they're eating it all up uh, there's usually no going back after that uh, exactly meal huh? yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> so um you know i i just have to ask because in the you know in the 60s you were in this jug band uh you know you're traveling the road probably things are tight in uh you know you're probably hand to mouth and then midnight at the oasis comes out you're now a giant international superstar. What, what, well, what, a small what was the difference in that? Well, you know, riches and fame have never been anything that interested me particularly. I think we've already established that. Yeah, this is, but I this mean, is a journey you're on. It yeah, has nothing to do not, with your trying to hit the top of the charts or anything. Or, like that. or, you know, wear designer clothes or be on a red carpet and all this 
all this jive. It, 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 it's just not something that ever even turned my head for a minute. So here I am. I'm, I'm singing, like I said, all these funky, rootsy songs on, on this, this album. album. And then this one song, Just which is zooms, the outliner. Yeah, <laughs> zooms to the top of the charts, and everybody loves it. And all of a sudden, I'm touring, opening for Stephen Stills and on the cover of Rolling Stone and all that. But it didn't It didn't turn my head. It. It. it, it uh, I mean, it was a it took me aback, and I, I, you know, had to adjust. But it was a happy adjustment. Here I, I, I rented a beautiful house in L.A. for a couple of years. But then I fell in love with Jerry Garcia's bass player, John Kahn. Oh yes. And um, who, who was who played bass and was Jerry's musical director in two bands, the Olden and the Way, and uh, the Jerry Garcia band, mm-hmm. and. Um, that was a just you know definitely one of the big loves of my life. And after a couple of years of a long distance relationship, I I'd kind of had enough of L.A. and wanted to bring my daughter Jenny up in what I thought were more normal surroundings. And I fell in love with it up here in in Mill Valley and in Marin County where he lived. So I packed up everything, moved to Mill Valley, and I've been here for the last forty some odd years. Yeah, so that was the late seventies. Uh, just yeah, as Jerry's yeah. about ready to and then launch I, and his own so solo then career. I went once I got up here, they would always invite me up to sit in with them. Mm-hmm. At the time, the Jerry Garcia band was Jerry, John Con, Ron Tut, Elvis's drummer and musical director, and in my opinion, Ron Tut and John Con were one of the great bass drummer partnerships of all mm-hmm. rhythm sections of all time keith godshaw on, on keyboard who right. also played, played with keys the in, yeah. the, in the dead the time, and yeah. his wife donna and, donna, and right. so they'd have me get up and sing and i'd find a third harmony with donna and um and pretty soon they asked me to join the band officially and so i toured and uh recorded with them from about 76 through 79, 79. Or 80. yeah and then um how'd you like being part of the circus uh, it was quite that an is experience. A totally different world. A totally different world, but it was just the big extended family, the whole Grateful Dead family, and it was a whole other cultural milieu to you know to be part of. And as a matter of fact, this wonderful uh, young band uh, called the Garcia Project recently asked me to um, would I want to be a guest artist with them because they, this there's a lot of Jerry spin-offs but but this is a band that very lovingly and reverently there's a whole cottage industry I'm uh, it just the Jerry gift. Garcia Grateful Dead inspired acts whether it's a tribute or yeah. takeoff or or something else there's just, there, it just like I said there's an going. entire it's cottage phenomenal. industry now. I I never I never would have ever guessed but their their particular thing I really like because I was kind of dubious when they asked me I was going what what well, what can I do, but they very lovingly and reverently recreate particular sets that are 
favorites of the Jerry's fans, you know, because you know how the Grateful Dead people are. They go, oh, remember the set in June 29th in, in, in uh, Boston, Oswego, New uh, York? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah, and yeah. they're like, and that, and that just mentioning the name and the place and the date of the set is enough to put them in a swoon. It's in scripture. Yes, <laughs> it, you're right, it's scripture. So they recreate these sets and, and from a period when I was in the band, and so she sings the Donna harmony, and they took me on board to sing, you know, what I used yeah, to sing. Yeah, what you do. It, it, and, and it's really, I was pleasantly surprised. They do it with such reverence and love. And when I did the show, I only did one show with them last year down in Redwood City, but I'm going to do more. I'm going to play The Sweet Water this Saturday and Hot Monk in Novato um, on Thursday night. But when I was up on stage with them, the way the music moves the people, it brought it all back to me. What was the big appeal about Jerry Garcia? And it, it wasn't his musical chops. It was like he was conjuring up a certain spirit that everybody got. And it would wave... A musical Buddha. Uh, he was. He was a musical Buddha. I don't even think he knew how or why that happened to be him. But Captain Tribbs. But but it, it happened with this band too. It, it's sort of not. It's not even when somebody plays a particularly brilliant lick. It has nothing to do with that. It's like a wave of joy comes over the audience, and that that's priceless. And so. When they asked me to do some shows with them this year, I said, "Yeah, I'm going to do it because it, it, it's fun and it brings back very happy memories." And they, they, the the guy um, Mick Bondi sounds so much. He he really has studied Jerry's playing and and he gets the tone just right. And they play in the spirit mm. of that of that wonderful music and it's fun. And and just like with my album, "Don't You Feel My Leg," that I'm doing now. People in this dark times really need to be uplifted by music more than ever before. And, you know, I just went to the Grammys a couple of weeks ago, and I was struck. I had a great time. Uh, they had a lot of wonderful artists on. And I was struck by how, how many artists who came up to, you know, accept their Grammy spoke about the purpose and the power of music to heal and bring people together in community, one artist after the other. It was much more about that and acknowledging that. And and everybody, nobody mentioned various political right. figures who shall go nameless or <laughs> anything like that. But it was just understood. We're all we're all kind of under a certain kind of pressure and going through a dark time, and everybody express such gratitude for just the power of music to bring us together and lift us out of that funk and just make us joyful for a minute. And and um, that's what I've always been about. And um, I experience it with the Garcia Project, but also when I do my Blue Lou Barker material, which is very funny and, like I said before, upbeat and kind of it just kind of lighthearted people you know i've always had good bands and always try to sing well and so very often in my career people have come up to me and said oh we loved the show and your band is so great and your voice sounds great now they come up and they grip my arm and go thanks we really needed that right <laughs> you know it's like 
people need music, uh, 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 live nour- nourishment music. for the soul. Pardon? Nourishment for the soul. Absolutely, live music, bringing people together in community. There's nothing like it. Yeah. And so I'm I'm glad that's that I'm still able to do that. Well, I, I think we are in a in a period where live music has come back to the forefront. Um, given the situation with recorded music and that there's not the money to be made that there used to be um, due to streaming and just, you know, the process of the music business itself. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact, as we talked about earlier, it's kind of hard to find uh, things these days. There's so much. There's so so many uh, artists and bands and singers and it, songwriters out daunting. there. It's It's really hard to, to rise above the noise. But the live music connection, that can always be had. And it's funny because that money's not in the recorded side nowadays, more on the live side, which is really the transaction that you you really get mm-hmm. uh, is being there, which cannot be it cannot be duplicated on television, and no. and it really can't be duplicated on on a, a recorded device. Yeah. You really need to be there to see it exactly. to kind of get somebody. You know, uh, uh, you know. For example, um, I'll just say it myself that you know when when I was uh, younger, uh, you know, I had a friend. Uh, uh, you know, all about Bruce Springsteen, all about Bruce Springsteen. I, I hated Bruce Springsteen. What, what are you talking about? What's a, until he said, I buy you a ticket. We're going to go to the show. After that show, I'm like, oh, wow. I totally get it. Okay, yeah. now yeah. I love Bruce Springsteen. You know, so it's really the live connection. And we're in this interesting time where live music seems to be everywhere. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's within the grasp of people's hands. And to your point, dark times, certainly a transition. We're, we're moving from one world to another world, mm-hmm. not too dissimilar to what happened 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Industrial uh, Age had come in. Um, world War One uh, had ended. That pretty much wiped out the old old Victorian Napoleonic world and yeah. now this new world was being built and we're in that position today I, I hope it's not as dramatic as, as those God, eras yeah. were um, but we, we are there we you know we're, we're now in this new information age uh, this interconnectedness um, social media and how we interact is all changing everything and it can be helpful and a great tool but it also can be damaging uh, as it doesn't well. take the place of listening to music and when I think Think of how we slave in the studio to make sure the EQ of the bass is just right and are the trumpets placed just right and should my voice be up or down a dB? You know, I mean, people who produce, and I've produced all my stuff in the last bunch of years, you know, we slave over this stuff. And now people are listening on these dinky little cell phones i mean it's just insane yeah yeah or on the mp3 itself which is you lose a a lot of audio quality exactly but it you know it's good to acquaint people but there's just nothing like the like you say the live connection like being together and realizing that we are together physically in the physical world and not just in the cyber world Mm. And that that's I, uh, that live music that exactly. guarantees you that, you know, and uh, my, my I think you would agree with this. My only advice is when you go to the put your cell phone away. Oh, I don't play. And if I see someone who tries to be doing that and the taking of the photos, do you want to talk about that? <laughs> I mean, I, I say I didn't travel eight hours to get here and play for you tonight. 
And I'm not here to, you know, pose for a close-up. I'm not here. You're not. You're, you're not Cecil B. DeMille's. You aren't Alan Lomax. You're not. You, you're not a good recorder. Put your cell phone away and Enjoy be the here be now. Present. Right, right. And and every time I do, the the rest of the audience claps, <laughs> and, and they're very appreciative of of that because how can they? They've paid money to come to an event. They've driven at least a little bit of a distance, stood in line to get in, and then they want to experience, they think they're going to capture it on a little cell phone. It's insane. Right. If I if I let them, there'd be people that would just try to experience the whole concert that way. But more and more, I've been outspoken about this, and now I see that more and more artists are, are feeling that way. Uh, it's agreed. like, yeah. you know... Uh, you're singing your heart out, and they're looking at their cell phone. Oh no, not no, in my. It's supposed concert. to make the emotional connection, and you ain't going to do it through the cell phone. No, put it down. Put I completely agree. Step away from your phones, people. So before the Blue Lou Barker album, it had been since 2011's "Steady Love." So why so long between the two albums? No, I made another one in, in 2012, I believe, called Memphis. First came Memphis Mini. Oh, that's another. Was that, was, was that a compilation? No, it wasn't a compilation. I had uh, Steady Love was an album of my Bluesiana music, another one that I recorded in mm -hmm. New Orleans. And um, that had a lot of kind of funky swamp funk stuff on it. And little, it was a little gospel-y, a little r and you know. Um, and then I wanted to do a tribute to uh, my all-time heroine, uh, Memphis Minnie. Mm -hmm. And, uh, y you know, another thing we were, we've been talking about is how timeless this music is. She's record She recorded in the 30s and early 40s, and, and yet the music is still moving people. Today I got Bonnie Raitt, Ruthie Foster... Uh, Coco Taylor, who's you know known as one of the queen of the queens of the blues. Who else was on that? Oh God, I'm drawing a blank. But uh, Oh Phoebe Snow, to name but a few. Rory Block. Uh, I I got all these different blues art uh, female artists to do one or two of Memphis Minnie's tunes, and mm. I did about a half a dozen of them myself. Also recorded here in the living room. Right here in the living room. Yeah. That's amazing. That's crazy. All right, so two questions. Looking back at your long career in music, what do you think about when you close your eyes at night? If I'm looking back, well, I'm I'm mostly looking forwards, I guess. I mean, I feel incredibly You're still blessed. pulling that thread. I'm still pulling that thread. I've got, you know, all kinds of interesting ideas I want to explore, but I look back and I can't believe all the amazing artists and musicians I've been blessed and privileged to have made music with and gotten to meet and know and make music with. I mean, everyone from people we've already mentioned, Dr. John, Ry Cooter, Bonnie Raitt, Mavis Staples. Yeah. Um, I actually sang a duet with Hoagie Carmichael. On, <laughs> really? Yeah, on uh, an, a song of his called "Old Rocking Chair." Uh, with I worked with Benny Carter in an all-star big band with Ray Brown on it, and you know, just you name all. I looked out in the studio 
at the time we were we were recording together and I just thought to myself, oh my God, these cats all played with Duke Ellington and Billie Holiday and they're playing with little old me, you know. And um, gee, the list just goes on and on. And, and um, the, the guys I'm playing with in New Orleans, they're, they're not like huge household names outside of New Orleans, but they're among the best players in the world and it, so, it so just it's goes about the players. on, on. It's just... I've, I've sung with I've sung with um, Ralph Stanley I've sung with Bill Monroe mm-hmm. I've I got to be mentored by a couple of the great original blues queens like like um, Victoria Spivey and Sippy Wallace and I, I sang sung duets with Charles Brown it, it, it's just amazing and and the adventure isn't over yet, so I, I feel incredibly grateful and blessed. So what would you say to a young Italian-American girl <laughs> falling in love with Roots music today? I would say go for it, honey, but don't give up your day job. <laughs> I would be able to, I would happily point out to them all the wonderful sources that they should go to and that back in those days we had to just pray that we'd find an old 78 in a secondhand record store and I mean now if I could give them a list of names and they could click their little mouse and it would all come up on YouTube and you know it that's one of the wonderful things about the cyber age is that I've been you know things I thought I knew about I can now delve into it's an endless infinity of wonderful music to explore yeah well maria Maldor, thanks so much for being with us on deeper digs and rock well thanks for having me so this guy comes up to me the other night you know he buys me a drink and we get talking pretty good you know but then all of a sudden he started to get a little too personal this is what i had to tell him don't you feel my leg don't you feel Cause if you feel my leg, you might want to feel my thigh. If you feel my thigh, you'll want to go too high. So don't you feel my leg. Don't you now that's more like it. Man, does she still have that voice and uh, sexy and body as ever. Ladies and gentlemen, the great Maria Moldar. Um, she may not understand this because this is just who she is. Uh, but there is a hunger out there for authentic, traditional American music. Well, here you go. Uh, to Maria, she's just doing what she's always been doing uh, with a few side trips here and there. After the interview, I had the pleasure of catching Maria sit in with the touring tribute to the JGB called the Garcia Project, a, a fun night where, where Maria has the chance to recreate those days with Captain Trips. She sounded great and looked like she was having a wonderful time shaking that tambourine and that still shaggy head of hair. I found her, as I said at the top, impishly sweet. She's warm and sexy as ever, and what struck me most was her ability to take just about every opportunity to humbly mention all the great people she's worked with over the decades. I'm not sure she really realizes how special her talent is, and sincerely just thinks she is lucky to have been hanging out with all these greats left and right. And, you know, she's right. 
we mentioned this in the interview, live music. Live music is everywhere. It's, it's, it's a really interesting time again. Um, everywhere you turn, somebody's coming into town. Uh, and nobody can sit back and, I guess, count their royalty checks these days. So they need to be on the road to cover the bills. And that is good for all of us. Music is always best when live. Uh, like Maria said, get out of the cyber world and into the real world. Anyway, she really is something. And her new album, Don't You Feel My Leg, The Naughty Body Blues of Blue Barker. It's a good one. Go out and grab it. Okay, until next time, this is the Rock and Roll Archaeologist signing off. So keep up the rockin'. Doing that twist, she's doing the Georgia grind. Georgia grind. That old Georgia grind. Georgia grind. She's going crazy, crazy about that Georgia grind. Come in here, come in here right now. You wanna be bad, but you don't know. Looking for ways to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 